Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. Today, we talk to investor and commentator David Bonson about the intersection of current trends in philanthropy and economics, including why stakeholder capitalism is a bad idea. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. We are recording on June 14th, 2022. As usual, I am in Phoenix, Arizona, and I'm happy to have as our guest, David Bonson, founder, managing partner, and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group, a national private wealth management firm. Prior to launching the Bonson Group, David spent eight years as a managing director at Morgan Stanley and six years as a vice president at UBS. He is consistently named as one of the top financial advisors in America by outlets such as Barron's, Forbes, and the Financial Times. You may recognize him from his frequent appearances on CNBC, Bloomberg, Fox News, and Fox Business. David is a, also a regular contributor to National Review. He hosts the popular weekly podcast, Capital Record, which is dedicated to a defense of free enterprise and capital markets. And he writes daily investment commentary at thedctoday.com and uh, DividendCafe.com, the last, it's just weekly commentary. Uh, David is a founding trustee for Pacifica Christian High School of Orange County and serves on the board of directors for the National Review Institute in New York. Finally, David is the author of several best-selling books, which I commend to your attention, including Crisis of Responsibility, Our Cultural Addiction to Blame and How You Can Cure It. And his newest book is There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. That just came out last November. David Bonson, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. Good to be with you. Took me a while to get through all of that. You're uh, very accomplished, and this is certainly one of those situations in which the knowledge of the guest supersedes that of the host by a laughably large degree. So please uh, bear with us here today. Um, I thought we might start by talking about investing, particularly about investing with the eyes of a, of a philanthropist, or less grandiosely, perhaps, the eyes of a giver. Um, how in your own mind, you're, you're both a giver and an investor, how do you combine the two goals of getting a good return on your investments on the one hand, and then using those returns to advance your own philanthropic goals on the other hand? Well, I guess we start just um, philosophically, if you don't mind, with the fact that I don't believe there is anything to give if there isn't um, something that has been invested. And so whether uh, proceeds are available for a gift from one's earnings or from one's invest returns from their invested capital. Um, we're all talking about the same thing and that the world of philanthropy and the world of uh, investment, which is the world of enterprise, is all fed by the same thing, which is economic growth. Economic growth is essentially the creation of wealth. The creation of wealth is essentially the function of markets, of free enterprise. It's the byproduct that comes of humans acting, um, allocating scarce resources, and doing so with a heart of innovation, 
uh, a heart of productivity, a mind of creativity. These elements help drive the creation of wealth, uh, return on invested capital, and out of that can come the opportunity for what you've called philanthropy or giving. Um, so various charitable uh, impulses still require the same thing that our lives and careers require on the enterprising side, which is growth. And so I view these things as largely connected and the philanthropic side just simply being the extension of uh, wealth creation and free enterprise into uh, one's heart of charity, one's, one's desire to benefit others in whatever that field may be, from education to humanitarianism to the arts, uh, et cetera. So that's the kind of framework I bring to the subject. And, and I believe it's very rare for one to be um, a philanthropist who is not also uh, an investor and a participant in this incredible miracle that is free enterprise. So do you, um, to what extent should the same principles guide in your mind, either for you, or do you think just for just generally, should the same principles guide investing, uh, in the market in, 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 uh, various enterprises through the market and, um, into charities. In other words, um, do you think it's a good thing, a healthy thing to be always trying to measure some kind of return on one's uh, giving? Um, uh, and some uh, Are there particular metrics you really care about in that or you think people should care about? Or is the return from a kind of philanthropic investment just fundamentally different uh, and, and it just requires an entirely different sort of framework and way of thinking than, a re than an investment in the market? Well, the answer is that, yes, I believe there are things people should look to to evaluate the success of their giving, but um, also, yes, I believe it is different in what one is looking to do and the way they're measuring it. And, and so what I mean by that is if we're talking about a successful business and they a business and we want to measure their success rather, and they have a year of losses, well, there's a lot of things we could look to to see if that really meant it was unsuccessful or not. Just because the profit and loss statement might show red ink one year, but if they were really building up a lot of brand recognition, if they were acquiring a lot of new customers, if there were certain elements strategically working in the business's favor um, in the big picture, then the mere existence of red ink wouldn't necessarily tell us it was unsuccessful. And so while profits are, are ultimately the, the measure of a successful business, we recognize there being different uh, periods that the business may go through on their way to long-term profitability. Well, likewise, for our charitable giving, when people try to attach what they love to call KPIs, key performance indicators to a charity, I don't understand why we wouldn't demand the same nuance, that there may be elements that go beyond um, just the, the, the sort of mere, let's say, um, it's a humanitarian organization and we want to see how many meals they're distributing or how many people that they are providing charitable services to or whatnot. Uh, I, I think one could be a very unsuccessful and unproductive charity with a huge headcount they attach 
do whatever they're doing. And I think one could have a very low head count, be a very meaningful and impactful charity. What can't be done uh, quantitatively in assessing our philanthropy has to be done qualitatively. And that's where I think these things transcend mere uh, econometric realities. The implication of what you're saying here is that just as one would need to really know a business, what its goals are, its aspirations, the sector it's operating in, the strategies it's undertaken. You need to know those things to really be able to evaluate a PNL uh, um, or to to see what's happened in the last year, let's say, um, and, and how successful it has been. It takes that same kind of intimate knowledge with the, with a charity, which which the implication of that is that one size fits all metrics are not very useful for a giver. Yeah, and of course, the same is true for an entrepreneur or an investor as well. One size fits all is generally not a very good thing, but it is particularly unhelpful when it comes to business enterprise and uh, charitable uh, impact. So is there any usefulness to things like Charity Navigator and, um, gosh, these other uh, other? Uh, enterprises that is, uh, try to you know um, assign ratings and stars and things like that to particular charities are those useful to a philanthropic investor at all? It, it may be. I would argue though that what I think they're more useful in is just curating data, and so by kind of providing a dashboard of data and then allowing someone who might be a little more intimate with the ins and outs of the organization to evaluate it um, and formulate their own opinions around the the context and the qualitative items they care about. Now, again, what depending on what the secret sauce of their star rating is and so forth, maybe there's something useful to it. But um, I don't, I don't know how they measure it. And as a general rule, I haven't found star ratings in most anything to be very successful, particularly when when there's some element where uh, the charity gets a lot of two stars and a few where they get five stars and they end up blending to a four and you go, well, four out of five looks pretty good. But you say, well, I, look, I want to know what these two stars are about. <laughs> right. You, yeah. You, exactly. you know, if you're blending, the analogy I always use for these types of things is a median. You know, if one, if a person puts one arm in a freezer and one arm in an oven <laughs> and they tell themselves they have a, a pretty good middle ground temperature, they still burned their arm off. Right. Yes, and, and I, I just don't know that those are helpful ways to quantitatively measure something. So, what you're a very successful investor. You've been involved in this world. Maybe you want to talk about your background a little bit there to to give listeners a little bit more context. But what have you taken from that world, just on your in your own giving life? Uh, what are there principles that translate over? Uh, things you've learned that you always look for when you're evaluating an organization to whom you might give a gift or a very large gift or might join the board of, um, how, do, how are those two, two worlds linked for you personally? Well, I mean, in terms of the types of things, you know, that I've looked to and when joining a board, I mean, that, that joining a board is obviously a very serious commitment and, and a very different endeavor from merely financially supporting an organization. And so that level of kind of uh, uh, connected activity that I think goes into joining a board is a big deal. And and there could be a lot of organizations one may feel called to support financially, but they wouldn't feel that uh, they could make a big difference in being on the board or would have the time resources available 
Um, so, so, you know, in my mind, the, the few organizations that I serve on the board of or, or have served on the board of over the years, um, it's a commitment, especially now at this stage of my life, I take very seriously and would view it as if it were a, a career endeavor. You know, um, I wouldn't join a board without really doing a lot of due diligence, vetting it, making sure I understand why they want me and making sure I understand why I want to be a part of them. And the best advice I have for people is to never join a board as a vanity project. And most important advice I have to an organization is to never bring someone on your board just as a way of getting a donor. And I think a lot of people do both of those things. I think a lot of organizations extend invites to prospective donors uh, to their board without really thinking through their vision, their um, ideological buy-in, their commitment to the mission, their ability to add value outside of their wallet. Um, and, and it can be a bit crass and disingenuous. But then on the flip side of the, on the other side of the table, I, I think some people may want to join a board for reasons that are different than merely what they can help, you know, what they can bring to the table in aiding that operation. And and so yeah, there, there's a lot that goes into both sides of those things, and it really requires contemplation and commitment, and and uh, it's 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 an important exercise. I, one of the, our previous podcast guests um, uh, worked for a foundation and made the made the comment that they invest in chefs, not restaurants. Uh, you know, in other words, really leaders, not organizations, particular people. Um, is that how you look at your own giving? What, what, what would you think about such an approach to, um, yeah, charity? Yeah, I mean, let me put it this way. I think that expression is incredibly useful when it comes to investing in a business. That The people in a business are everything and the vision of an entrepreneur uh, for, you know, a, a less mature and seasoned business is pretty much going to make or break the success of it. Um, I think it is true with a charitable organization, but admittedly, there are some organizations that are a little bit less leadership dependent and more institution dependent. A strong leader in a weak institution is not a charity you want to give to, and, and a weak leader at a strong institution is probably not one you want to give to either, although I would take the latter to the former. It but but that all depends on the size and nature of the organization. Um, fundamentally, there are organizations that so many charitable dollars go to that are so large that you're really dealing more with a kind of bureaucracy. You're dealing with an entrenched institution. And in that sense, to your analogy, it would be more about the, the kitchen than the chef. Um, and yet there are smaller organizations that are a little more nimble, a little bit more dynamic, uh, a, a little bit more uh, proactive. And there, you're most definitely more chef focused. And given the, so you come from a strongly, um, if this didn't come through in the introduction, I'll say it now from a perspective, I think it's fair to say, I hope, strongly influenced by sort of the Austrian school uh, of economics, Ludwig uh, von Mises, Hayek, et cetera, an emphasis on human action as the key to understanding uh, economic behavior. I hope I'm saying this. Do you agree with? There's a portrait I'm drawing so far, agreeing with your own self, <laughs> self portrait. 
Well, meaning that uh, I view economics as primarily the study of human action, and right. human action yeah. is the centerpiece of economics. Right. Absolutely. Yes. It's the, right. the very definition. So how is that shaped? I'm just trying to get at this. I've never had somebody – does that shape a very different understanding of um, of the charitable sector? Like is it um, – how does that understanding of economics um, – inform a better understanding of uh, uh, the charitable sector. I guess that's the best way I can put it, but whether it's the act of giving or just the, uh, or how the sector should or should not be uh, regulated um, um, or shaped by uh, sort of macro sort of parameters set up by policymakers. Uh, have you, do you have a thought on that? Does that make sense? Yeah. I, I, let's put it this way. I have a very low regard for um, policymakers and central planners and bureaucrats engaged in enterprise, and yet even I believe in some role of a regulator at some level enforcing rule of law, you know, having some kind of parameters around certain elements in, in the open economy and the free market. Um, but it's a very limited role for a lot of reasons that have to do with incentives and knowledge. And I would view envision an even lesser role in the world of charity. Uh, the notion that a regulator or bureaucrat or disinterested third party um, is uh, necessary in any regard um, for one to give to a, a philanthropic organization strikes me as uh, comical. <laughs> does that, uh, does it lead you to some though, the same Austrian view, some distrust of the sort of the more bureaucratic or larger philanthropic institutions that, that sort of bestride the sector as well or, or no? Repeat that last part for me. Yeah, does does that kind of Austrian view, this sort of and this sort of dim view of, of regulators, um, does that also lead you to have a dimmer view of large philanthropic institutions, the more bureaucratic institutions? Yeah, but in all honesty, I don't think that's um, necessarily rooted in the specifics of Austrian economics. I think it is classical economics. It really comes down to one's view of human nature. Um, there's a sort of theological precedent in, in both Catholic and Protestant traditions here about subsidiarity, about localism. I think our our founding fathers uh, expressed this uh, in political context with the concept of federalism, and and so you know whether we're talking about the political dimension or the um, business dimension. The, the principle is, is one and the same, that bureaucracy is generally the enemy of productivity, the enemy of creativity, and that the reasons for that are entrenched. They're not a matter of just getting better computer programs or better databases or better um, people, that fundamentally there is a dispersion of knowledge in the society that is wide. And complex, and that to maintain time and place circumstances, um, you really require a lot of local knowledge and decision makers very, that have a lot of skin in the game connected uh, to what they're deciding. And, and so I think that the um, world of, of philanthropy 
the, the organizations that build a very large and complex structure, I think over time they get more removed from what it is the mission of the organization was set up to do. Um, and that's because it requires a lot to maintain the bureaucracy of a large organization. There's a lot more layers of management. Uh, there, there's a lot more, um, you know, politics and, and, uh, complexity and so forth. And, and so there is a, a bias I have towards small and nimble in both the business world and the nonprofit world. Fantastic. Well, we will take a break here. We'll be right back with investor, commentator, and author David Bonson. Stay with us. Right, time for one of our usual interludes, uh, which we now use to do a segment of our ongoing GDT Reader's Guide, uh, where we talk about some books that have been important to some of my colleagues here at American Philanthropic. And today, I am happy to have with us my colleague, Ian Bernhoft, who is our uh, leader, our managing consultant in writer, writing and communications. I just messed that up. I, I, I just asked you that before we recorded, but that's close, right? That's close enough, Jeremy. How are you? I'm great. Uh, Ian uh, is uh, like several of us here at Amphil, an academic refugee. He has his PhD in literature from Boston University. We often end up talking about books with one another, so it's good to be doing that here again uh, for the rest of you. And we are going to talk about a book whose title I think a number of listeners will have heard, but maybe only that. Maybe some of them will have read it. A really interesting book from a very interesting thinker. Uh, it's Nassim Nicholas Taleb's book, Anti-Fragile. Uh, tell me a little bit about Taleb, what else he's written, uh, Ian, and then maybe talk to us about the central concept and argument of the book. Yeah, so Taleb is a really interesting guy. He um, He's a Lebanese by birth. And he... Did some time as a as a day trader and as a you know sort of high level risk consultant and and whatever for all these big European banks and became independently wealthy and then he got into the academia side of things and there's a really funny passage from the book which probably don't have time to read about him comparing the world of academia to the world of business but he's he's a guy who's he's sort of a polymath who trades in ideas and in um, money and. His overarching interest, I think, is in randomness and uncertainty in the world today. So one of his most famous books is called Black Swan, which came out right around the time of the financial crisis, at which Taleb had been predicting and made a, a pretty coin off of. Um, but he, Antifragile is, is a follow-up to that book, came out in 2012. And I think basically... His overarching project is thinking that modernity has a pathologically poor relation to chaos, disorder, randomness, chance. And there's this sort of like this hubris that sets in with scientific rationalism, which he calls the Soviet Harvard delusion. That is that you can somehow <laughs> predict the world accurately and minimize your risks and so on and so forth. And uh, he wants to think about randomness and chaos and volatility in better ways. Um, the Soviet Harvard delusion is a, is a phrase that definitely needs to enter the lexicon. Uh, that's really good. 
Uh, so talk about, he gives several categories of things, right? Some things are fragile. Some things are anti-fragile. There's another category, if I recall correctly. What, what yeah. are the, how does he so, kind of divide the world up? Yeah. So he, he says, you know, maybe the old paradigm that we operate in is thinking about things as either being fragile or robust. And he says, no, there's actually three categories. Robust is the middle one. And so fragile means you're, you um, suffer from volatility, but you, you hate volatility, right? So if, if the glass is balanced on the edge of the table, any changes in that environment, the glass might shatter. Robust means you can, you can withstand it, but anti-fragility, this concept that he, he maps out here is, well, it's right there in the subtitle, things that gain from disorder, things that, that grow stronger through volatility. Um, and it's one, of those, it's one of those great concepts because I think, you know, you can get it pretty quickly. And then once you get it, you know, it, you see it everywhere, right? Yeah. Give an example. Like what, what are some things that are anti-fragile? Our immune system is anti-fragile, right? Like if you, if you live in a perfectly uh, sterilized environment and are never exposed to bacteria or, or gunk or whatever, you become incredibly weak. Your immune system becomes more robust as you have it undergo stresses. Right. It doesn't just withstand stress; it gets better and uh, it functions better by being exposed to stress. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, he thinks that entrepreneurship, for example, is another one he he comes back to in in the book as embodying anti fragility. That in entrepreneurship, failure ultimately makes you more robust, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, you you learn from it, you you develop better systems, you you adjust what you're doing accordingly. Whereas, you know, the, the big bureaucratic corporation, on the other hand, can't respond nimbly to, to volatility and might be completely destroyed by some sort of fluctuation that the entrepreneur can scramble back from. What does this have to do with civil society? I, I, can, I can spy in the distance that it has quite a bit to do with it, but um, what do you think it has to do with it? And does Taleb say um, things specifically about this concept and its relationship to? civil society. Yeah, so I think I think that civil society is an example of the sort of organic system which does possess a lot of anti-fragility, which because you know some of the characteristics of that make things anti-fragile are um containing and being being responsive to randomness and chance, having redundancy, being decentralized. Like he thinks the nation state for example is tremendously fragile because you end up building up these huge things where he says, you know, with the existence of the nation state has brought on catastrophic wars and sort of global um, destruction on a scale that never would have been possible if we had these sort of decentralized city states and tribes and whatnot of the old days. Um, and so I think that, you know, his, his embrace of anti-fragility and his, his argument that we need to see it and embrace it is, on the one hand, it's, it's antithetical to the sort of modern obsession with streamlining things, with efficiency, um, with doing things at scale, so on and so forth. It really is an argument for localism and federalism, I think, and an argument for the, the power of organic, self-organizing systems. Um, because, you know, he keeps on pointing out that as you centralize things, and try to um, sort of scientifically optimize things, you in fact introduce a lot of um, 
susceptibility to volatility, even as you have this delusion that you are controlling it. Yeah. It's a really, it's one of those arguments, one of those books that once you read it, you won't, you can't, um, you'll never forget it. it. It's it's a completely counterintuitive to everything in this world and how our experts think about things. Um, and it's in a, it employs a language and, and concepts that haven't even been picked up by those who are out sort of outside the mainstream of, of thinking about business, politics, society, right? It's, that's what makes it really interesting is it's not speaking as sort of a sort of a libertarian language or a, um, a federalism sort of language or something that we may be more familiar with. It's, it's kind of getting at some of the same uh, ideas, but from a completely different conceptual library. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Am I right? I know that's not a question. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's great. And, you know, a nice thing about it, if you, you know, dear reader are, are thinking about dipping into it is, you don't have to read all 450 pages to get it. You can, he's a, he's a fun writer, partly because, um, you know, he's a, he's a colorful guy and he's, he's likes punching other people in the face. Yes. He does like that. Ideologically yeah. anyway. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's, and it's, it's short chapters covering a huge range of things, everything from airports to Lebanese cuisine to, you know, Europe in the 18th century. And, and you can sort of dip in and dip out in a, at, at your at your discretion. Awesome. Highly recommended. The uh, book is Nassim Nicholas Taleb's Anti-Fragile. Thank you, Ian Bernhoff, for talking about it with us. My pleasure. All right, we are back with David Bonson. Uh, investor, commentator, author, uh, most recent book, There's No Free Lunch, 250 Economic Truths. And we'll, we'll get to that here in a little bit. Um, I want to, we're going to pick up on the, the localism angle that you just uh, laid down before we went to the break, David, here in a bit. I want to go back to a question I had and see what you think of this. Um, often people will now talk about social investment, um, by which I think they mean, oftentimes at least they mean, um, making investing in a for-profit company, but taking a lower financial return uh, with the idea that there's something else about this company uh, that is it is good that that makes it worthy of of this investment, or that it's simply not capable of providing the kind of return that might one might get on another investment for various reasons, uh, but it's still worthy of doing. But how does that concept shake out in your own mind? What do you think about that? Yeah, I would generally run from it as fast as my feet at this old age would let me run. But I want to explain why, because you're talking about two different concepts that I very much like. I like the idea of social impact and and, uh, bringing either strategic or or financial resources into a problem that could be beneficial. And I like the idea of venture and, and... enterprise that is profit producing and wealth creating. The, re- the issue I have here is category distinctions um, that, that one is essentially suggesting by the very vocabulary that there is such thing as a venture, a business, that it does not have a social impact. And one is suggesting that there is some sort of a charitable output that that does not 
um, have a component of organization and social cooperation and, and you know, business savvy connected to it. Uh, I do not agree with the dilemma that they are attempting to juxtapose here. I believe that um, there is something perfectly cogent. Um, what you end up doing here, in my opinion, is either having a charity operate um, subpar or having a business rationalize it's less than uh, capable um, business savvy. But if the goal is to grow uh, the delivery of a certain good or service in the market economy and to maximize profits from it, and then um, in so doing to deliver a social good, I would like to believe that is called every single business ever. And to the extent that one says, no, I really am willing to take a lesser return because I want to have more of a charitable impact. Well, again, that is what profits are for, for you to receive them and then freely choose what to do with them. And so I, I understand what uh, they're going for here. And if we were only talking about mixing peanut butter and chocolate and ending up with something that surprisingly tastes better than we thought it would, if that's what it was, I'd be all for it. But that isn't what we're talking about here. We're not talking about getting something one plus one equaling three. We're getting something one plus one equaling less than two. And I'm not really sure it's re remotely needed if we have a properly constructed view of both business and philanthropy. With that in mind, then, um, I'll ask you another question uh, that springs to mind. Um, is there any theoretical reason in your mind and from your perspective for me to take not to take some of my profits uh, that I, I, I earmark and say, I'm going to give this back. 10% of what I make this year, I'm going to give this back. Um, is there any reason why I shouldn't give some of that to a for-profit company? In, in other words, is there, other than an IRS distinction, um, I mean, there are different, is there any reason why I shouldn't do that? Well, you mean as part of your philanthropic? Yes, as part urges? of my philanthropic giving. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that the um, even apart from the tax deductibility of a gift, that the uh, capital structure of a company, when you put money into it, it is entering the business as either equity or debt. And presumably what you're describing here is equity. And so you are looking to gain a return. You're looking to get something back. Where in a gift to not-for-profit, even if you decide you want to forfeit your you can always forfeit your tax status. You don't have to claim the deduction. They can send you a charitable receipt, but you can throw it away and not, not incorporate it in your itemized charitable giving. So if for some reason you don't want a tax deduction, you don't have to take it. And yet it, the idea with the charitable gift is that you're getting nothing back. Um, you have both legal and financial expectations in a for-profit contribution. And, and so if the question is more, is the subject that you're giving to the same thing in a widget making as it is in something humanitarian, I would say no, that there is a purpose or mission in one organization that one is to maximize the profits to the business for the sake of those who uh, own the business. And, and the only way to do that is by delivering a good or service that the marketplace wants. But one's natural charitable impulses 
when you look to things that require donor dollars to be supported because they do not have a revenue model to support them in the world of what education, church, uh, the mission field, um, again, various humanitarian type causes, um, you're, you're really talking about a category distinction of revenue model. I think we're starting to touch up on this. So let's bring it up now. Why is uh, stakeholder capitalism such a bad idea? You wrote a very um, compelling article about this, uh, I think not too long ago. Um, I may be wrong about what the date was, but that struck me. Uh, I'd love for you to yeah, give us that argument here. Yeah. I mean, it was uh, published in National Review pretty recently, and it's a subject that I uh, feel very strongly about, that, and that is um, uh, at the end of the day, uh, the primary fiduciary duty of a company is to its owners. And within the system of thought we call free enterprise, um, one is in a better position in the marketplace to retain employees, to have really um, high talent that services the organization, that has vendors and suppliers that want to work well with the company, that provide things on time. Um, I think there are uh, a lot of incentives, and there ought to be a lot of incentives, and we ought to help create a lot of incentives for a robust relationship between a business and all of its stakeholders from laborers to suppliers to vendors to even just, you know, customers and members of the surrounding community. But as a uh, basic category distinction, um, when we say that the fiduciary duty is spread equally amongst all stakeholders as it is to the shareholders, the owners of the capital of the business who own the risk of the business, and then we've not only bastardized the vocabulary, but we've just done a hatchet job to the concept of risk taking. Because the fact of the matter is that the risk takers that possess the upside because they own the downside um, possess a very particular distinction in the law and in the economics of a business. And so for us to play word games around how important it is that a business serve all people that are stakeholders is to ignore the embedded incentives of a market economy, to uh, ignore what enlightened self-interest is really all about, and, and the need for a uh, volunteer altruism. Now, that we, we don't have to make up a legal duty that can't possibly be enforced, that has no limiting principle. And, and the greatest example is if we say your primary fiduciary duty is to your uh, equity holders and your employees. Well, every single time you give a paycheck and are not giving more money in the paycheck that you, that you could be giving, you have picked your equity stakeholder over your employee. And, and, and the limiting principle would not allow for that consideration. The, 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 it's, a, it's one of the silliest things I've seen passed off as intelligent discourse in the last several years. And all it really does is lead to cronyism. I mean, obviously, it leads to all kinds of pharisaical virtue signaling. 
But but as a matter of law and a matter of financial vocabulary, it's unfortunately rather uh, silly. Um, speaking of pharisaical virtue signaling, then I, I would you consider a for profit. Every for-profit firm now is is missional. It seems like right they they proclaim their mission, and it's never the mission of maximizing shareholder value. Um, is there any um, from your perspective, other than the marketing sort of goods that might come from that sort of language? Is there any uh, any legitimacy to such claims? Um, when when people are making claims yeah. that uh, that I believe are pharisaical. Well, no, just any claims about being missional that it, where, where the mission differs from maximizing uh, owner's value, uh, shareholder value. Well, yeah, because you can't maximize shareholder value if you don't have a fund underlying mission in the organization. And so the, the problem I have is with creating a tension between the two things. So I'll, I'll use my business. If my mission is to maximize shareholder value and I'm the, the, the lead shareholder in the business and, and someone says, well, how do you do that? And you say, I don't care. All I care about is maximizing value. Well, th- th- so therefore, I have a um, value creation of zero. I'm not doing very well in my mission when I say that the mission s- starts and ends with share with creating value for the shareholder we do so how by serving clients so in any business it is the delivery of a good or service in the marketplace you're meeting human needs so i have no problem at all with a financial services organization saying our mission is to deliver competent financial advice to those who need it or to be a a creator of financial solutions, you know, various types of things that people in my business might allude to. I think those things are very legitimate examples of missions. But what we're referring to when we talk about stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism is not the mission of the business. It's the fiduciary duty. And and I think that that the fiduciary duty uh, exiting that of the uh, owners of the business, it opens up a can of worms that becomes totally undermining of any business's long-term success. Um, I, I think that that you know a lot of it becomes semantics here. But, but to your question on mission, I'm sure you're right that a lot of people are using this language in sort of a um, unhelpful kind of generic, uh, you know, flowery way. But no, I, I also think that when we say um, generate profits that, that help the shareholders, the, the um, goods or services at question matter. You know, a business who has a strong mission because they really want to build the highest quality real estate in Detroit, Michigan, I, I think they can be very missional about how much they care about real estate and care about that community and care about that neighborhood and why they did it. All those things might be very specific, very missional. It's just that at the end of the day, uh, there are there are stewards of capital that that require the fiduciary duty. You said something interesting a little while ago that I thought I'd follow up on. You said you believe that it was possible uh, to create incentives that would um, that, that revolved around creating more productive or stronger relationship between a business and its surrounding community, among others. Well, what sort of incentives do you have in mind there? Is there anything in particular? Um, 
I'd be curious about that. Well, I, I think that uh, freedom is a great yeah. example. Okay. The, great, the more freedom that exists, the better rule of law. Um, a business wants to really serve town A or town B, and town A um, is defunding police, making it dangerous to do business there, and town B has a strong regard for rule of law, punishes shoplifters. You've created an incentive for that business to better serve town B than town A. It sounds like somebody in California speaking to me right now, for instance. Well, actually, unfortunately, a lot of the insanity has gone nationwide. Yeah. But can we talk a little bit about California, actually, since that's where you're based? It, uh, not to derail us too much, but as a question I had on my list here, just to ask you your thoughts on it as somebody who does business out of Orange County. On the surface, the state just seems, you know, to me, doomed, uh, you know, at least financially. What is there, um, what's your analysis of your home state? Yeah, I mean, I have uh, more negatives to say about this than most anyone. The irony, of course, when you come at the financial state is that right now has had record amounts of revenues. And so I, I never really think that the uh, financial state is the best argument because the uh, the highly cyclical nature of the state leads at times there can be just incredible revenues that would be the envy of all 49 other states. The problem is that, that it is hypercyclical. They don't have a great diversification in their revenue model. They're heavily required uh, heavily dependent upon capital gain revenue in the technology sector. And the state has become incredibly tolerant of hollowing out their middle class, being essentially a state for the very rich in coastal and more um, kind of elite enclaves uh, where a lot of revenue can be generated and people that can afford the, the burdensome expense of living there. And then there is a significant amount of people on the dole in the state, a sort of welfare state that's been created but a middle class that is largely um, exiting the state quickly. And that would be my biggest concern is that culturally the state ends up becoming that absurdity that it's headed towards. And, and they're making great progress towards that goal all the time. But I'm careful with a lot of my friends, um, particularly on the political right, that look to uh, some of the dangerous um, things that the state will do, their unfunded pension liabilities, their heavy degree of municipal bond debt, um, their you know, obvious and clear dependence on labor unions and their, and their power structure, their public employee labor unions, that is. There's a lot of dangers there, and yet um, you get something like the silliness of the federal COVID bills that a, that flushed states like California and New York with cash, and all of a sudden those states look real healthy financially again on a relative basis. So um, my 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 uh, category focus is more cultural than economic. Are we headed into a recession? Well, we're all eventually we're always headed into a recession <laughs> soon or um, now. No, I don't. I don't think it'll be um, particularly soon. I think that there there is a very good chance we end up uh, going into one if the Fed, in their endeavors to tighten monetary policy, um, feels the need to go all the way till they break something. Then I think that what they break will very likely cause some form of recession. 
but um, there, there's all sorts of reasons that that could be a ways out, that it could be very mild if and when it happens. And then there's, there's scenarios by which it could be quicker and deeper as well. But I don't think those things are knowable. And, and so I would not forecast with any kind of high likelihood that a deep recession is imminent. And, and it's difficult because even though this can change, the, there is a lot of legitimacy to the argument that the jobs market, it's just really pretty much unheard of to go into a recession at three and a half percent unemployment. Yeah, that's right. And we've all lived that tight uh, labor market the last uh, year, especially the last couple of years on the ground. Um, so how are you, many of the people listening to this podcast or nonprofit professionals, they might head up a nonprofit, be development officers. How would you advise them to prepare for whatever effects are going to come, at least from inflation, which is definitely here, or higher interest rates um, in terms of the philanthropic marketplace, that, that the giving marketplace? But what, what advice might you give to them to prepare for the effects there? What effects should they look for? Well, I think that the um, inflation levels we see right now are clearly most severe in food and energy and and so you know a, a nonprofit organization's needs might be very different uh, than than another category of nonprofit organization. Um, inflation is never distributed equally; it never has been. Uh, the whole concept of trying to measure the impact of price adjustment in an aggregate has always been, I think, kind of a silly idea. But particularly right now, um, you know, organizations, uh, the best example I could give, because I run into it all the time myself, is with nonprofits that are looking to buy real estate. And I would just simply say that some nonprofits live off of buying real estate. You know, they, that's what they do. We could think of any number of, of examples, you know, shelters and, and uh, nonprofits that are building um, warehouses to, to, you know, uh, accomplish various objectives. Some are in a real real estate kind of uh, business and others uh, do not need it. And I would argue that if indeed we are going to correct these excesses that exist in both our commercial and residential real estate market, it might behoove some nonprofits that don't have an urgency to purchase real estate to to wait a little bit but um in terms of the day-to-day inflationary impact for long-term portfolios of endowments and and other organizations that have kind of longer duration capital that you're talking about um, i would very much encourage them to have a portfolio that doesn't force them into underperforming inflation many nonprofits lean into a more conservative posture which is a very good thing a very prudent thing but locking in um, fixed rates with a rising rate environment can be dangerous to their, their uh, long-term capital. So there's a number of things nonprofits can do uh, to kind of deal with inflationary realities. But again, I don't think that's unique to the current environment where we've seen a big escalation in prices over the last year and a half. I would argue that it's true in any environment that there is some need to be uh, cognizant of and prepare against inflationary impact. All right, last question for you, David. Come, this um, there's no free lunch. Has 250 uh, quotes 
uh, in it, I believe, in various uh, chapters, crony capitalism, free trade, um, covetousness and class envy, various things. I, I recommend it very much to listeners who, um, especially who are interested in economics, in the sort of the philosophy um, of economics, economic theory. I'm just going to give you one quote to riff on here as we end, the one I thought that kind of touched on um, philanthropy the most, and it was uh, love locally, trade globally. So why is it optimal to love locally, trade globally? I think you got that quote from Russ Roberts. I did indeed get it from Russ Roberts, and, and it's something Russ, as a brilliant economist, understands very well. Um, but we do not love globally very well. You love with a, a, a concept of moral proximity. Most of us are better able to extend meaningful love to the baby down the hallway in our house, to the you know uh, grandparents that we care for, or to our next door neighbor who we see and deal with every day and bring them you know, food and groceries when they're sick and whatnot. There's a love that is um, intimate and meaningful and tangible in its proximity, love locally. How do you best help the person in Bangladesh that you will never meet, never, never see? Um, well, you can put things like love globally on your car, like a bumper sticker. You can post an image on Instagram. You can tell your friends how incredibly global and citizen of the world like you are. Um, but if you really want to help people in Bangladesh, you can trade with them, buy things, sell things, right? So there is a sort of market dynamic that can actually help people all over the world. And there is an intimacy dynamic that requires localism. And all at once, in those four words, Russ Roberts pulled off what I just took two minutes to pull. <laughs> it is a great quote. Uh, so I'm glad I gave you a chance to elaborate on it for us. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, uh, David Bonson, for being with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So we can follow you at the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. Any place else where people should look for you online in particular? Yeah, we're uh, going to have a really big launch of Bonson.com, B-A-H-N-S-E-N. -E it will be kind of my main website for my personal writing, political writing, economics, a lot of those kind of fun things. The DCToday.com is a daily market commentary. DividendCafe.com is every Friday a weekly um, macroeconomic commentary. So the, each one of these websites, it isn't like I have three different websites that all a various different function, a different kind of purpose, but you know, where, where people can most personally follow me and track me, it's at bonson.com and, and we're doing a big upgrade to the site here in a couple months, which will be a lot of fun. And also I should know as well, that's great. Bonson.com, uh, B A H N S E N. And also you can find David regularly at national review. So thank you again, David. Also I'll, Plug it one more time. There's no free lunch. 250 Economic Truths is a great book for people uh, to get. So thanks again for being with us and, and uh, take care. Thanks so much.